0: amen good morning everybody good morning. so glad that you're here this morning and uh and so glad that we get to worship together this morning luke chapter 12 luke chapter 12 verses thirty five through forty eight luke chapter 12 verses thirty five through forty eight and before we read for today we read our passage that the that the Lord has given us for today. First, let us recite our memory verse uh, for this month. And it uh, comes from Luke chapter 2. And Pastor Chad introduced it to us uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we talked pretty extensively about it last week. So if you weren't here last week, I really, really encourage you. Not only for the memory verse, but also for just the, the part A of, of this particular Uh, section. You want to go back and listen to last week's message. It's going to give you the doctrine of Christ's second coming. It'll bring just a lot of clarity to your mind about about, uh, having understanding about the doctrine of the second coming. We're looking at something on the ceiling. I'm not sure what it is. Oh, a wasp. Okay, just let's, uh, we'll trust God with that wasp. Okay. Um, So, so you wanna go back and listen to that to that message for sure because again it's if you've ever wondered how is this gonna work at the end, can someone make sense of the end times for me? It's just very clear and simple. In the way that we spoke of it last week, it brought a lot of clarity, I think. And so you're going to want to go listen to that, but also because it introduced just these two important aspects within our memory verse in which the angels are saying from heaven about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're really bringing two truths that the gospel in light of the gospel brings glory to God and it brings peace between God and man. And so uh, they have excellent theology and they are speaking of of uh, the gospel message. But let's just say it together. You ready? I'll be on the screen. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. Again, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so again, uh, the, the gospel, in light of the gospel message, the angels are singing. Specifically in light of Christ and his birth. And they, they are rejoicing over two things in light of the gospel. And that is that the gospel brings glory to God and it brings peace. Between God and man. What I want to explain as we continue meditating upon this verse, and uh, as the, we, we hear kind of the multitude of heavenly angels in light of the gospel, um, I want us to understand this kind of idea of glory to God in the highest. And it's not anything complex, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's very, uh, very simple, but it, it has profound um, implications. And so next week, actually, on on Palm Sunday, when we talk about uh, Christ's entrance into Jerusalem, um, they said the same thing at his triumphal entry. You remember this? The people said, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the, what, highest, right? Well, the idea comes from just... uh, God's reign and rule in the highest of places, which has implications. It's like what Psalm 69 says. Let heaven and earth praise him and seize in everything that moves in them, for God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. Now look at this for a second. You can see the idea here. Let's take it this backwards for just a second. Because of God's saving work, He has completed the absolute highest work in heaven and on earth, right? For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, ultimately fulfilled in the Messiah. Therefore, let heaven and earth praise him. He has glory in the highest of places because of his saving work. This is the most glorious work in all of heaven and all of earth. So even the highest heavenly beings praise God. Give glory to God because of his love and his power and his wisdom and his might in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so therefore, he is the greatest in heaven and he is the greatest on earth. He is set apart and everybody realizes it, right? On the earth or in the heavens. And what this helps us to understand is if glory goes to God in the highest of all places, at the highest peak, right, in the heavens, then he has glory in every place underneath. Right? Think about this. If a a king is recognized in a neighborhood, right, that king is also recognized in a city, is also recognized in in a country. I mean, you, you just keep going up. If he's the top recognized, most glorious, authoritative one, he is recognized all the way down from his palace throughout the the most intricate of places. And so, if you think about this, God's glory and his worthiness of all of the praise that is due his name is, is in the highest of all places, and therefore it reaches to the lowest of all places. So, remember, in light of the gospel, in light of the gospel, it displays how worthy God is. He's deserving to be worshiped, praised. He is independent, He's holy, He's magnificent. He is awesome in the most awesome of places. The angelic beings who would scare you lifeless if you saw him are worshiping, are worshiping this God because of his saving work in Christ. So now let's turn to Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Hopefully you're already there. And we're going to read our passage that the Lord has given us today. Luke chapter 12. To turn the page here stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. And he begins to to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and to drink and to get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the second sermon of this section. And this is what we encounter in just simply walking through the book of Luke. And what we're seeing here in this section is Jesus training his disciples to be ready for his return. Training his disciples in this greater section here, we're seeing, as the main point, Jesus training his disciples to be ready for his return. That's why I've entitled this two-part series, Be Ready for Christ's Return. Jesus is teaching true disciples how to be ready for his return, and he's teaching that true disciples are ready for his return. That's the particular doctrine here. If you remember, the thesis statement of this passage is verse 40 of chapter 12, which is this. It's in the passage we just read. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. That's the thesis of this whole section. So that verse divides up this section into two sections. And today we're going to be covering verses 41 through 48, which is the second Of the sections. But the point is the same in both sections. True disciples, be ready. Live ready for Christ's return. That's the point. Don't live like the Pharisees, remember, who were fearful of man, who were spiritual hypocrites, who cleansed the outside and yet the inside remained unclean, who denied Christ and therefore he would deny him, who denied the Holy Spirit's work who are covetous and greedy and anxious about this life, right? We're just working our way through chapter 12, right? But seek first instead the kingdom of God. Treasure him and the gospel. Set your heart upon him where your treasure is. Your heart will be also. Be ready. That's the progression of this. Now, in the first section of the passage, verses 35 through 40, he tells us this parable. And it's a series of metaphors. It's really one parable. It's one picture. It's one story. But it, it incorporates a series of metaphors to illustrate a truth. A parable comes alongside a truth to bring clarity to a truth. A story, oftentimes fictitious, to come alongside the truth and to bring clarity to the truth. But as we've seen these series of metaphors, stay dressed, keep your lamps burning, be like men waiting for the master to return from the wedding feast. Open the door when he comes. The, the master of the house who's ready for the thief. And we see, we, we've saw all these metaphors. We've seen all these metaphors. And really they're a picture of what it looks like to be ready. And so Jesus is helping his disciples, training his disciples to be ready. So what we saw again was the pictures of readiness last week. How can Jesus help you be ready? Well, take heed to these, to these uh, metaphors here. And then we saw the blessings of readiness. That was our second point, which Jesus talks about. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake. When he comes, he will serve them. And referencing the wedding banquet of the lamb where Christ will serve you. Right? And then we talked about the endurance of readiness, the, ble- the picture of readiness, the blessing of readiness, and the endurance of readiness. It's going to take endurance. All of these pictures are, I don't know when either I'm going to die or Christ is coming back, which here in this context, it's Christ coming back. Therefore, I'm just got to stay ready. <laughs> I just got to endure. I got to be like a master waiting for a thief at all times, right? I got to have a lamp burning at all times. I got to be dressed at all times. So it takes endurance. So specifically now in verses 41 through 48, Jesus is applying this parable to the believer and the unbeliever. It has implications for both. That's the main point of this, these verses now. Verses 41 through 48. Jesus is constantly referencing the parable that he just spoke That's like the foundation. You have to have that for what he's saying now because he's constantly referencing back to the parable. And by doing so, he's applying the parable of what he just said to the believer and to the unbeliever. Meaning it has implications for everybody. Everybody should listen, right? And Jesus is making that clear in this section. Jesus, Peter's saying, who's this to? And Jesus says, everybody everybody needs to be ready right so that's what's going on here in other words how this parable applies to everybody and this is rather easy to figure out i mean you don't you don't need much to 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 understand this it's pretty clear right you can it's not hard to figure out what he's saying here okay He's referencing the parable he just spoke of. He's referencing it the whole time and speaking of how it encompasses everybody, okay? So everyone needs to be ready for Christ's return. The parable showed the disciples how to live ready, how to stay ready. But it doesn't exclude the call for unbelievers to get ready, right? It's implicit in the parable that he's speaking of. The the implicit message is, if you're not ready, get ready, right? So how do we get ready? Well, we get ready first through the gospel of Christ, through salvation, through trusting in the message of Christ and his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection on behalf of you and your sins to provide forgiveness, that you would repent of your sins and trust in the merit of Christ alone alone. For the forgiveness of your sins. And then it looks like sanctification. Not only salvation but sanctification. Living ready. Being centered upon the gospel. Seeking first his kingdom. Being about your father's business. Right? This is what it looks like to be ready. Therefore everyone in this room needs to be ready. So. Jesus told a couple of parables that I want to read before I give you the preview of the points and then we'll move into the passage that you can see kind of just the implications for everybody, for the believer, for the unbeliever. Luke chapter 21 says this, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with the dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Who will it come upon? All. Oh. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Everybody. Second Peter chapter 3, this is the whole chapter, right? This, and this is just an intro verse for us. So let's read the whole chapter of 2 uh, Peter chapter 3 real quick. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through, your, through the, your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, ready? Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, meaning the prophets and the the fathers of Israel, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where's he at? He ain't coming. Let's live how we want to live. Or let's get ready later. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly, which we talked about the progression of that last week. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, meaning his coming, As as some count slowness, he's patient. He's being patient, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. We talked about all that last week, if you remember. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, in light of all of this, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him. Without spot or blemish and at peace and count the, the patience of our Lord as salvation. It gives me an opportunity to be saved. Just as our brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. In which the ignorant are able to, unable to twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Which, by the way, just side note, totally irrelevant. But if you want to use a particular verse that would show that Paul's writings are indeed verified scripture, this is a good verse. Because he says they twist Paul's letters as they do the other scriptures. Right? So here's one way in which the Bible verifies itself in terms of, of its writing. Verse 18, but grow in the grace of knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. One more. You can read really all of 1 Thessalonians 5 and all of 1 Thessalonians 6, and and it deals with this the whole time. But let me just read about uh, seven or eight verses. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because of our testimony to you, because our testimony to you was believed. And so that's just very clear as to what's going to happen to the believer, to the unbeliever, when he returns. And those are the three things that we're dealing with. Return, unbeliever, believer. Verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you, that God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, this is, this is the, the point, and it's all over the Bible. Let's move into the division of the matter because we gotta move. And this last section, verses 41 through 48, we're gonna divide into two sections. So this whole thing, we've divided into two main sections, and then this section, we're gonna divide into two sections as well. We're gonna see the, the parable implications for the believer, and we're gonna see the parable implications for the unbeliever, Okay. In these verses, that's what we'll see. Um, Very simple. So to make these headings clear, let's take these one at a time, okay? First, the parable implications for the believer, verses 41 through 44. And if you're a believer in Christ, take this in. This is good news for you, okay? Okay? Verses 41 through 48, or 44. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his Possessions. This is the parable implications for the believer. Okay? Verses 41 through 42. Peter is uncertain about who this parable applies to. Who it's addressing. Right? Who are the analogies addressing? Who are these metaphors addressing? Who is this story addressing? And Peter, as I've told you before plenty of times, excuse me, is a a spokesman. For the rest of the disciples. So what's always implied when Peter speaks is that they're all wondering the exact same thing. Right? Peter's just got the guts to, to speak up. Right? And what's so, so Jesus here, though, as he is so wise, he doesn't answer the question directly. Okay? He doesn't answer this directly. The parable above, if you remember, is only about the faithful servant. There are no indications of any form of judgment in the parable that he he just gave last week. So the metaphor is the one who is ready. And Peter asks, is this parable about the one who is ready, getting ready, staying ready for us or for everybody? And instead of answering him directly, Jesus says, well, who's the one who's ready? Right, You can decide by your response whether this applies to you or whether this applies to everybody else. He answers indirectly by asking the question because if you remember from chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 13, verse 9, he's training the disciples. This is a clue because Peter's even asking, are you telling us or are you telling everybody? There's an indication there because he wouldn't even be asking that if Jesus was just talking to everybody the whole time. He's asking because it seems as if there's a an application to everybody. And so he's saying, are you still just talking to us alone, secret, like you're turning to us like you've been doing, or are you talking to everybody? Because the idea was that the crowd was still there and they were still listening. They were overhearing. And this is kind of like the church. This is kind of a a microcosm picture of the church. The, The church is for the edification of the saints, right? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's what we're doing here, the believers. The church, by nature, are the believers. So you can't have church and it not be defined by the believers, right? While at the same time, crowds, unbelievers are coming and overhearing, and then they're taking heed to what is being said from the word of God that really only applies to the believers. Well, that's what's happening in this situation, but Jesus, in his answer, he says, it really doesn't matter who I'm literally speaking to. That's not the question that you should be asking, Peter. What matters is who should take heed to this, who should hear what I'm saying? And he's saying, well, who then is the faithful and wise servant? He said, if, if you want to know the answer to the question is who that parable applies to, well, if anybody in the crowd or you disciples who are standing right here meet that description, then you are that faithful servant. And, and, and you will be blessed when Christ returns. So if it doesn't describe you, then you're an unfaithful servant, unbeliever, and we're gonna talk about those implications in a minute in a minute. So the parable covers everyone. Depends on if you meet the description. Right? Does that make sense? So that's how Jesus kind of asks, answers. He just asks the question in return: Who then is the wise and faithful servant? Right? Who so This is to the believer and to the unbeliever. And, and you can see that this is speaking of believer, unbeliever, because the other accounts of this particular section in Matthew's account and Mark's account make it clear. Let's just look at this for a second. This is the same, the same words of Jesus in the other accounts. Okay, We can supplement to bring clarity to this particular passage in Luke. Here's what he says. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunk... Drunkards, so this is the same words that we just read, right? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour he does not know, cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. Remember that? We just talked about that. And then he says, in that place there will be what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's speaking of believer and unbeliever here. It's clear. It brings clarity to us. In Mark's account, he says this. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows—not even the angels in heaven nor the son, of, uh, nor the son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge each week, uh, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come—in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say, I say to who? To who? Oh, there's the answer to Peter's question. Jesus, who are you speaking to? Who's he speaking to? Oh, it brings real clarity. And he's speaking to them, therefore, to the believer and to the unbeliever. Okay, everybody's gotta get ready. So in verse 42, he says, he says, who then is? Right, meaning, Meaning, when Jesus responds, he's saying, "Well, depends on if you meet the description." And I'm not going to read it just for the sake of time. But in Luke chapter 19, you see the parable of of the the talents, or uh, here it's used the the uh, minas. and And here's the deal: ready? When the master goes and he comes, it de- the 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 response of the master to the servant was dependent upon if that if that servant Bore fruit, multiplied the talents. Now, in the parable of the parable of the talents, it's often misused. That's dealing with faith and the gospel. Okay, can you apply it to giftings? You sure, but it's dealing with faith and the gospel. So will the master come back and find someone who has genuine faith and therefore is multiplying their faith? Or one who is afraid of the world. I was afraid, Master, you sow where you do you reap where you do not sow, meaning the world doesn't want you in this world, and so therefore I was afraid to multiply, and therefore it's an evidence that I have zero faith in the gospel. That's what that parable is about. Will he find that faith? But it depends on what, what the master did while he was gone, right? That's the evidence of the faith. And so that's what Jesus is saying here, is, is it depends. Who's this parable applied to? Are you the faithful servant? Or are you the, an unfaithful servant, okay? So, so now when he says this, he says... Who then is the faithful and wise manager? Faithful, pistos in the Greek. In the New Testament, this is always used for the term of believing. The believing, who is the believing, right? Someone who has been born again, redeemed by the gospel. I'm just bringing clarity to this, okay? So, and then the NASB adds the word sensible. What does it say in our translation? Faithful and what? Wise, the, the Greek word nemos which is the res, sensible, meaning wise as a result of salvation. Okay, listen. Sensible, wise, as regard of salvation. The gospel of, of God is described as the wisdom of God. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 1. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Before you're born again, the gospel message is not the wisdom of God. It's the foolishness, right? So here's what he's saying. Who then is the faithful and wise manager? Who is the believing? Who is the believing? And who is the wise? As a result of salvation, knows God, knows his will, servant. That's the question as to who this applies to. So here's, I mean, ask yourself, is that you? Are you the believing and being made wise by God's word, all of this is important in light of Christ's return. So look at the, te- look at the text with me. Look at it. Ready? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful the, or the believing, the wise as a result of salvation? Manager. But manager here is literal steward, servant. He's referring back to the parable, Right? He said it's manager here, it's steward, it's servant. It's, he's referring, referencing just right back to the parable. Who's then the wise as a result of salvation? A believing servant. Whom, who does what? He uses manager here. The idea is manages well the spiritual riches of God. Meaning the gospel's been entrusted to you. You hear it and you do something with it. And what you do is the right thing to do. You receive it. And you believe it, and you're saved. The one who mismanages that takes it and throws it away, right? So, are you that? Have you repented? Have you believed? Are you are you have you been? Are you being sanctified? Are you multiplying? Are you living ready for Christ's return? This is the evidence of a true believer, a true servant, a, a, the faithful the believing steward. Second Timothy says this: By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What's the deposit? Anybody know? It's the gospel. Guard it. Manage it well. Treat it right. Respond to it right. This is, this is the wise, faithful manager who's responded to the gospel, right? Whom the master, look at, look at the text, the master will set over his household. The master literally here means Ruler, ruler. He's referencing the parable time and time again, set over his household. This is what we just talked about in the parable, right? So set over his household. Verse 42. To give them their portion of food at the proper time. Now this is, you could ask a question here. Is he talking about giving the servant their food at the proper time? Which would make sense. In due time, it's literally saying, We'll give him his food at the wedding banquet of the lamb when we serve him. That would reference back to the parable. Or that this manager is being faithful to feed the people in the household. Is the manager giving the food at the proper time to the rest of the household? Or is God giving the manager the food at the proper time? And I think here it can allude to both. Right? That the manager will receive his food at the proper time. Meaning the wedding banquet of the lamb, the master will serve him and at the proper at this time, this faithful servant is being faithful to give the food to the people in the household. Meaning, probably he's feeding other people with the word of God. Right? This is the picture of the faithful manager. Peter's asking, "Who is this applied to?" And Jesus says, "Well, who's the believing and the spiritually wise from the gospel steward or servant, whom the ruler has set over his household?" who will give him the proper food at the time and is giving food as he lives. That's the answer to who the, the wise and faithful servant is that will be blessed, verse 43. If, that meet, if you meet that description, verse 43, look at this, ready? Blessed. Blessed is that servant. Blessed. Blessed. Happy in God should be that servant. Referencing back to the parable, look at verse 37. What does that say? Verse 37. Blessed. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Right? Verse 38. Blessed are those servants. Saying the same thing here. Blessed when he comes. Referencing the parable when the master comes. So that's the illustration here. It applies to everybody. It depends on whether or not you have responded that you are the wise, saved, faithful, living faithful, wise in light of the gospel, steward, servant of God, feeding his people, waiting to be fed by him. Blessed is that servant. He's gonna receive an inheritance when the master comes, if he finds him doing his work. And then he says this at the last in the last verse of this section, verse 44, he will set him over all of his possessions. But here's, he says here, look at verse 44 with me. He says, truly I say to you, that's an emphatic statement. Whenever you see that in the scriptures, it means he's being emphatic. Like, let me, let me, uh, let me make sure I emphasize this point. Truly I say to you, check this out, he will set him over all of his possessions. Meaning, this is a, a metaphor for inherit eternal life. You will inherit, this servant will inherit eternal life. Revelation 3 says this, the one who conquers, look at this, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Daniel 12, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise in the gospel, believing, made wise through the, gospel, the wisdom of God in the gospel, they're going to shine like the brightness of the sky above. That's the idea here. Set over all the possessions, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Blessed are you if this is you, servant. Awesome. Be ready. Stay ready. What a blessing! You're going to shine, right? You're going to be. You're going to be a co-heir with Christ. You'll inherit everything that's His. And what's His? Everything. So, what do you inherit? Everything. Wonderful. Wonderful. Verse. 13, uh, verse 43 of Matthew chapter 13, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. So who does this address? Well, who then is the faithful servant? That's who it addresses. Does that meet? You should go home today and spend some time looking at verses 35 through 44 and say, God, I want to be that. That's what I want to be. 35 through 44. I'm not going to go on to verse 45. I want to stay in verses 35 through 44. Is that me? Awesome. What an inheritance. What a blessing. What a future, What a hope. And then we get to number two, which is the parable implications for the unbeliever. Verses 35 through 45 through 48. So let me read these verses. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and to drink and to get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knows his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This, by contrast, is the unfaithful servant. Okay? This is the unbeliever. So this is how Jesus is saying, who's the faithful servant? But here are the implications. If you don't meet that standard and you're the opposite, then these are the implications for you. You're the unfaithful servant, right? And so it's, here's, here's the overall determining factor of the one who falls into this category. It's the one who ignores what he says in verse 40, which is be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not. Expect. Be ready. Salvation. Sanctification. The one who falls into this category has ignored that statement. Right? And there's some reasons why. This makes it really clear. So stay with me. Okay? Verse 45. But if. Meaning, or and if. Literally. Meaning, there's a here's a contrast here. It applies to both. We've seen the, the side that meets the standard. Now let's see the Implied other side that doesn't. If that servant, it's interesting here because the word that's used here is slave. So there's these subtleties that he's speaking to the other side here. If that slave contrasts to the faithful, sensible, steward, slave, right? Says to himself, ooh, look at this. Wait, notice this says to himself, where was the other man's wisdom coming from? The gospel, faithful, believing, sensible, wise in light of the gospel. Here, this man's wisdom is coming from who? Self. If he says to himself, he's got no wisdom coming down from heaven. He's just saying whatever he wants to say, believing whatever he wants to believe, telling himself he's just making it up. It doesn't mean it's true. It's just what you want to say. It's just what you want to believe. Right. It's just it's not true. You can say that it's just what you're saying is just not true. He's saying that about himself. He says whatever he wants to say. And what is he saying? He's saying this. My master, even though it's not true, he's saying it to himself and believing it, my master is delayed in coming. Or it's going to be a long time before he comes. It's going to be a long time before he comes. I don't have to be ready yet. I'll get ready later. I'll live how I want to live right now. With Jesus as maybe second or third or fourth or fifth, or I'll believe maybe on my deathbed. There's no what we call urgency to receive the gospel and to be sanctified in Christ. Right? I'll do it later. I got time. Let me let me love the world first. Let me be satisfied in the world first. Let me continue in the wisdom of the world first. Unfortunately, that is the evidence that there is no salvation. That there is no sanctification. It's like the anxious passage that we just looked at a few weeks ago. It's concerned with this life. So I'll just wait. So... He says, then he begins to beat the male and the female servants to eat and to drink and to get drunk. And the idea here is just full of disobedience. And it might not look blatant disobedience. It could be in the heart. But both sl- beats men and women, both, both here, idea is destruction, no spiritual faithfulness. Second Peter speaks of something like this. And many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of the truth will be blasphemed. And that doesn't have to be blatant. If you follow your own sensuality, you follow your own goals in your own life, and you call yourself a Christian, then the people who are watching your life will say, oh, maybe I can live half-hearted too, wait till later and still be a Christian. The way of the truth is being blasphemed. Right? Right? So if you, especially if you call yourself a leader in the church, been a Christian for a long time, and you're like half-hearted, half-in, half-out, the way of the truth is being blasphemed. Because that's not at all what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, take up your cross daily, follow me. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He says, eat, drink, and get drunk. Romans 16 says, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, which is the scriptures, the doctrine, the right doctrine, the right scheme of teaching, that's doctrine, scheming, the scheme of teaching, the right scheme of teaching, avoid them. For such persons, look at this, do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So instead of this man, listen, instead of this man stewarding well the believing, the wise, he's speaking to himself. He's believing from his own words and he's not managing well the spiritual riches of God in the household of God. Instead, he's exploiting them and using them for his own pleasures. He's not feeding the servants around him. He's getting drunk with them and beating them. And the idea here is that we are all created under the rule of God, to know God, the steward his creation, to bring his kingdom to earth, to be his image bearers, to receive the gospel and then live for him. And when we use God's world for our own gluttonous and drunken pleasures, to bring destruction for our own our own goals, our own means, our own plans, our own destinies. We're being unfaithful. We're being the unfaithful steward, the unfaithful slave. When you don't realize that you're just a servant waiting for your master to return and everything in the household is his. And we, we steward it, but that only comes to the one who believes. The only one who is wise and sensible from the gospel. Right? Right? The, the, the abuse, and here's the illusion of that. Here's the illusion is that this servant thinks that he has plenty of time to live in sin before the master returns. Isaiah 56 says this His watchmen are blind, they're all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark. They're dreaming, they're lying down, they're loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say. Watch this. Come. They're telling people, come. Let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And watch this. Ready? And tomorrow will be like this day. Great beyond measure. Tomorrow is going to be the same as this day? Lord ain't coming. He won't be here tomorrow. Don't worry. Tomorrow's gonna be just like today. Right? No urgency. Maybe live how I wanna live and I'll turn to God at the end. It's foolish because as Christ just said, he will come at an hour you do not expect. Right? That's the whole point of this. So you can see how this fits together. But what's even worse is it fails to take into account the doctrine of apostasy. Now, not that, that, not that anyone who is truly a believer in Christ will can turn away from Christ or lose Christ, but that God may just give you over to your hard heart. And the point is you're no longer in a place where you can repent and believe. That's a scary thing to toy with. Don't toy with that. If you're waiting till later, Hebrews 10 says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which? He was sanctified, and is outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will, be, will judge the people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So the danger here in verse 46 we see is the, the faulty miscalculation of the master's return. Look at verse 46. The master of that servant, he will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour, he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, to literally cut him into sunder, pieces, meaning it's a drastic measure, meaning symbolizing judgment of the wicked. It can be translated, he will cut him off. Psalm 37, nine, for the evildoers shall be what? Shall be cut off, Right? The heritage decreed from, man, from, from him to him by God. Matthew 7, the idea here. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out many demons in your name, do mighty, many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Matthew 13, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so this is just the, this is what he's saying here. This is just what he's saying. Right? This is where we find ourselves as we make our way through Luke. And this is, this is what he's saying. But here, let me point this out. Verse 46, it says, he will put him with the unfaithful. The literal translation of this is he will put him with the unbelievers. Remember, he talked about how faithful. The translation of believing and here, the unfaithful, the unbelievers. Okay. So. The fact that he's using the word unbelievers here, the metaphor becomes now a reality. Okay, stay with me. A few more things. The pleasure of this man that he had while the master was gone is now becoming an eternity apart from the master where there is punishment and it's gonna happen quick. That's what's being said here. Verse 47 through 48. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did, and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. You might be confused by that. I understand that. There's, what, what's happening here is that Jesus is indicating that there will be a degree of punishment that will somehow vary. He's already made mention of the rebellious slave, the outrightly rebellious slave who received the, the worst of all punishments. But now there's two more types that have somehow a varying degree, which gets progressively lighter, but still accountable nonetheless, okay? So this one, verse 47, stay with me because this applies to you. I hope it doesn't, but this applies to us. We should take heed to it. I'm not talking to anyone in particular. <laughs> right like oh me verse verse 47 this is not the rebellious this is the second okay there's three three pictures this is the second this is not the outrightly rebellious but this is the one who is preoccupied it's not defiantly wicked but the one who is distracted okay Verse 47, the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. He knew, but he didn't obey. Like when the lawyer came to to Jesus and said, What must I do to be saved? And Jesus answers in a way that says, you know what it says? And if he would have really wanted it, he would have gone and searched after it, found out he couldn't do it, and then said, I need a savior and trusted in Christ. The issue is he really didn't want it. He knew the truth, but he really just didn't want to fall underneath of the truth. That's the idea here, right? So it's those who instead seek eternal life, but I mean, who quote unquote, seek eternal life, but then don't really want that. You know you just don't want it. There's no more answers that have to be given to you. Right? The punishment here is severe, but it's somehow lesser than the earlier punishment of the one who cuts into, is cut into pieces. This is the one who says, I know, but I want the world first. Let me get all the world first, and then I will have Christ. Right? This, that's, that's what's happening there. And then the third degree, verse 48, but the one who did not know and did what deserved the beating will receive a light beating. So here, the idea is there's still no excuse, even if you didn't know. Even if you don't know, because you do know. Why? Because God makes it plain by your conscience and by creation. Verse Leviticus 5:17 says, "If anyone sins doing any of the things that the Lord's commandment, by, by the Lord's commandment ought not to be done though he did not know, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity." Romans 2 says, "For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, meaning they're still going to perish." And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. They'll be perished by law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are the righteous, but the doers. Right? Verse 15: They show the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excused. On that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ. Romans 1 says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have, clearly, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are... Without excuse. And so this is what Jesus is saying here. He's showing the degrees of this punishment. And the the conclusion here. Jesus gives this. The reasoning for the different degrees of punishment. And it's this. The degrees of punishment for unbelievers. Are directly related to their knowledge of the truth. And we see that all over the scripture right they're directly related to their knowledge of the truth so all of this is meant to tell you for the unbeliever get ready this message is for both praise god if you're the believing servant if you're not get ready trust in christ receive the forgiveness of your sins now is an acceptable time, 2 Corinthians says. Now is the day of salvation. He's giving you time to repent. Right? The call is this, in 1 Timothy 1, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I'm gonna take Jesus's words from verse 40, and I'm going to thank God that this still applies to me and I can respond that this is giving me a picture of the other side of it. And so Jesus is, Peter is intent. God is perfectly in his providence ordained Peter to ask that question. Who is this to? Everybody. If you're the servant, praise God. You're that blessed servant who receives that blessing. If you're not, get ready, right? And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me in the faith that are in the love uh, and love that are in Christ Jesus. I just want to read you one illustration before we close. John Piper speaks in a sermon, and I just just the idea of the one who has not believed to be called into faith. I just want to read this to you, okay? He says this. Let me put it in a picture. This is what happened to me, and I'm sure this is what happened to many of you. Let me put it in a picture. But first consider, he says, 1 Corinthians 23. We preach Christ crucified. That's the message of the gospel. It says this in 1 Corinthians 1. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block at times. To the Gentiles, it's foolishness at times. But to those who are being called, this message of Christ crucified, this message is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So some hear the message and they stumble over it because they say, crucified Messiah, that's incomprehensible. Others hear the message and they say, crucified Messiah, like a criminal, that's just foolishness. Why would you worship something like that? And they stumble. They take offense. But those who are called who hear the message, who believe the truth, who say they say this is the very power and wisdom of the creator living God. This is the wisdom of, of God who created the world. I must build my whole life around this power. I must build my whole life around this wisdom. And many regard Christ crucified as foolishness. But those who are called see this as power and wisdom of God. Something happens. Now here's this picture. Picture it this way. Before you were called by God... You are, in a real sense, asleep in your bed. Imagine this. Asleep in your bedroom. That's your life. Okay? Into your bedroom. Sleep in your bedroom. That is your life. Okay? Into your bedroom, Christ walks. Stands at the foot of your bed, and he is risen. And yet scars are there. Maybe blood still dried on his side. And he is glorious in his Calvary love. He's risen, and he has radiance. And he's standing at the foot of your bed, and he is magnificent and gloriously real, but you're asleep. And not only are you asleep, but you're also dreaming. And in the dream, which is your life, you're sleeping, you're dreaming, you see Jesus in your dream. Only in the dream, he looked foolish. For the life of you, you can't figure out why anyone is excited about this guy. Maybe he's a historical figure, maybe an ethical teacher, but nothing about him that attracts you whatsoever. You see him in your dream and there he is and you see people sort of worshiping and getting excited and you just pause in your head and you say, sorry, I mean, I just don't get it. I just, I can't get into you, right? Your universe is not my universe and this is your dream. This is your life and he's there. He's no big deal. He's unattractive. He's uninteresting. He's boring. He's boring. He's boring. And you wondered why others made such a big deal out of him. In your dream, your television's more exciting. Your boyfriend's more exciting. Your job is more exciting. And then the Holy Spirit of God, sweet, quiet, powerful Holy Spirit of God, comes in and hovers over your sleeping head. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, some late night, some early morning, some Sunday morning sermon, some walk in the park, some conversation with a friend, you hear the Holy Spirit and he says... Wake up. And it so startles you. And the first thing you see, you turn and you see Jesus and he is totally different than what you are dreaming him to be. You see the real Jesus Christ. You see his power and radiance of creator of the universe, the son of the living God. You see his love pouring out on the cross, crucified hands and feet laid down for you. And now he is absolutely, irresistibly, compellingly, not only compelling, but attractive and glorious. And you say, he is the wisdom of God. He is the power of God. I must, I cannot help but build my whole life around him and his gospel. This is the picture. And the question is, have you responded like that? Have you been called? Have you awoke to the, to the real Christ in light of his truth and therefore you're ready for his return? And I just pray that that would happen to you. That's it. So Peter asks the question, who is this to? And Jesus asks the question I ask you, who is the, the faithful, sensible steward? Is that you? If not... You need to get ready. If you are, stay ready because he's coming. Let's pray. Father, we come and we just ask you to use this for your glory. Help us to leave and to take heed. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.